That's where we will be. I'm going to take uh, about 15 minutes. We're going to give these kids some sugar. We're going to celebrate a little bit of time. And uh, listen again to the kids. You all have done awesome in here on Sunday mornings. Okay? So very proud of you. Very thankful. Uh, you parents, again, you've done awesome too. I know it's hard work. This is a hard thing that we're asking you to do, which is to uh, just allow us the opportunity to do church with your children. Um, that opportunity is not afforded to some because of whatever reason, but I want our children to know when they turn 16, 17, and 18 that this is their people, you are their family, and you love them dearly. That doesn't come if we're always segregated. So I am thankful for our church buying into this. So give me a couple minutes here. We're going we're gonna to go into... Um, where we've been the last couple of weeks, which is that Jesus' life. Today we're going to talk about fulfilled promises and future hopes. I'm going to teach you one principle, and I'm going to give you one apologetic this morning, okay? So where have we been? We went through the Passion Week, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Silent Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday. We talked about the trial, or the trail, the trials, and the triumph of Jesus. As you look at that week, what do we see? We see the trail of triumph. Jesus walks the road that God has set before him. We're going to see some of that again today in the Old Testament. We talked about the trial of his triumph. It wasn't just all kingship. Palm Sunday gives way to Good Friday. There is a trial there. And on that uh, night of prayer and suffering, Jesus bows his head and says to the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. And in that, he walks the final road that none of us could conquer, which was always God's will, never our own. And Jesus was able to do that. I, I walked you through Isaiah 53 and told you that week. That's not a New Testament concept. Isaiah 53 says it was the Father's good pleasure to crush him. By his wounds we are healed. And we'll talk about that just for a couple minutes here this morning again. And then we talked about the triumph of Christ, that resurrection, when the stamp of approval on all of his teachings, on the virgin birth, on the life, the sinless life of Jesus, when that stamp of approval happens, it happens on that first resurrection Sunday. And that stone is rolled away, and there is no body in that grave. You and I are seeing God say, correct, affirmed, true and right and holy and good and righteous. You and I are seeing every yes and every amen to every one of God's promises. When Jesus comes up out of that grave. You know, the song we sung this morning, or the, the verse we were talking about this morning said, Though he died. Do you understand that Jesus' physical body died too? And yet three days later, what is he? He is the first fruit of more to come. That first fruit says that you and I are going to be a part of that harvest one day. If you know the Lord, you are not going to just die physically and go on forever in a spiritual state. God is going to give you a new body just like Jesus' body. There is a reason why they touched Him, held Him, clung to Him, ate with Him during His resurrection appearances. It was to prove it was a body. It was not a hallucination. It was not a ghost. That's where we've been. Corinthians chapter 15 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's in vain, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus Christ was not bodily resurrected out of that grave, you and I are in big trouble. Paul would actually go on and say, You and I are people to be most kidding. Why? Because you and I are living our life under subjection to God and His will and His love and His kindness. And a lot of times that comes across in humility. It comes across with having your way last. And yet, because of what God has done, we know that the blessing comes not only in the here and now, but also in the future to come. 
And we live that way in the eye of the Lord. The Lord promises never to see even a cup of water given in His name will not be in vain. Every good thing done in your life, God is going to reward. So we looked last week at two truths and a principle. What is powerful enough to change these circumstances in such a short time? From He is gone, He is dead, to we will go. We're going to watch this transition in the next couple of weeks. From grieving to giving. From grieving the loss of Christ to giving hope. And giving joy and giving peace in just a short amount of time. From the grave to the gardener. From Jesus being dead in the grave laid away to someone mistaking him as the gardener. Why? Because Mary looks around and she sees this one that's up and walking. That cannot be Jesus. She does not recognize him and she thinks he is the gardener. From the grave to the gardener. The resurrection changes things. It changes people. And from full to vacant, the empty tomb is a magnificent piece of why we believe the resurrection to be true. There are two foundations to Christianity. I told you them last week. It is Scripture and it is Jesus. As far as Scripture goes, is it true and is it pure? Is it real and is it pure? And as far as Christ goes, is He dead or is He alive? Because if we answer that question that He is dead, then our faith is really not much of a faith at all. It's a band-aid. It's something that's going to sell us out in the end. It's something we're going to lose everything to for no reason. But if He is alive, you and I have invested our life in the One that is able to take us into eternity in the presence of God. We talked last week about the two foundations of Christianity, Scripture and Jesus. I told you last week what are two of the uh, proofs of the resurrection. It is the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses. To kill Christianity, all they had to do was to bring out the dead body of Jesus and toss it in the street. But they could not do it. Now that's phase one of the argument. Because it's technically correct, somebody could have stolen the body. If they can remove that stone, if they could have got past the soldiers, they could have removed the body. But there's another piece that I'll share in the weeks to come that's going to blow your mind. The empty tomb and the eyewitness testimony are two proofs to a resurrected Christ. And I told you last week, if you want to know Him, you've got to learn to grieve. If you're self-sufficient, if you've not grieved sin or loss or death or dying or the brokenheartedness of someone else, if you've not grieved your own sin in a long time, if you've never walked into God's presence with something on your heart so heavy, some need, He has probably been far from you for a really long time. A lot of people feel that way because it's been a long time since they grieved anything. I took you through Old Testament passage after passage. God comes to the brokenhearted. Your tears do not fall in vain. Your grief does not come uh, in vain to a God that doesn't care or is not listening. It hits the ears of a loving father. And just like the prodigal son's father, he runs to meet us in those moments. So we come today. Luke 24, we're going to read through some of these verses with you, and then what I have this morning is very, very uh, easy to comprehend, and we're going to get through it. An eternity-changing sermon. If I could listen to any sermon one time that Jesus preached, this passage would be the one I would choose. The Sermon on the Mount is unbelievable. But the longer I've been a Christian and the more in the last 10 years that I've fallen in love with the Old Testament, I would have loved to have heard Jesus preach this sermon. Because you want to talk about something that goes all the way back into the heritage, the lineage, Moses, Abraham, creation, 
Jesus is going to speak to the disciples that are walking on this road today, and he is going to preach this sermon pointing himself out in those books. Fascinating. Can you imagine? 2,000 you know, year old writings. And Christ is walking on the road with the disciples and the men of the mansion, and they're talking about what's happened, and he starts to take them through the scriptures and says, there I am, there I am, there I am. You've been waiting for something else. Let me show you how God promised that it would come. There I am, there I am, there I am. This fascinates me. This is an eternity-changing sermon. Read it with me, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And <laughs> he just stopped them in their tracks. Like, hey, what are y'all talking about? <laughs> Alright. This guy's crazy. Right? Verse 18. Then one named Cleopas answered, him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and were before God and all the people, and how our chief priests, rulers, delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us that they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Verse 24. Uh, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow apart to believe all the things the prophet has spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What is the Old Testament? Let me tell you something. The Old Testament is a treasure map. It's a treasure map. There are just nuggets and goodness all the way through there. I hate the concept that God somehow changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Governments have changed. Now, a theocracy. The nation of Israel was a theocracy, and so God operated differently in it. He was their king. They were to follow him. They were to obey his law, and those that didn't were to be punished. But God did not change. There is mercy and grace and love from Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament is a treasure map, and most of us in Western culture don't have eyes to see it. So Jesus walks them through this. Verses 13 and 19, he says, what things? What things? I'm begging you, be people that question. Be people that question, that ask questions, that push for answers. Why? Because instead of Jesus just giving them the answer, he starts to make them probe what they think. Why? Because when he gives them the real answer, he's going to shift all of that. He's going to show them that what they thought had happened was wrong. If you read through their explanation of what goes on, right? He is a man. We thought he was the Messiah. And Jesus is going to walk them through who he really is. But he can't do it without making them question what they actually believe. 
He has to show them there is some ignorance there. People that do not ask questions live on in their ignorance for far too long. Be people that ask questions. When Jesus starts this sermon, He starts it with a question. He wants to see what their frame of reference is, and then when He starts to walk them through the story as it really is, they're going to see where they were mistaken. And it's going to help change their life for years to come. Verses 19 to 24, they're sitting somewhere between grief and fear and maybe a little bit of hope after a story that the body was missing. But what do they find themselves? They find themselves floundering. They're heartbroken and worried. Got somebody saying the body is missing. Can you imagine just those moments of just being like, what in the world is going on? Just think about like the, the first day or two after 9-11. Some of us are old enough to remember that. The first day or two after 9-11, and just look around like, what in the world is going on? The first month of the coronavirus stuff. Like, what in the world is happening right now? They're living all of that stuff, and Christ comes in to meet them. He finds them and wills this conversation into existence. He wants to preach this message to them. He wants to give them hope and joy and strength and peace with what is getting ready to happen. Verses 25 to 26. Jesus' correction doesn't come from his teaching. Where does it come from? It comes from their own foundational documents. Did you see that? Did you pick that up? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, believe all that who? Not Jesus. Have you not believed all that the prophets have told you? Listen, the Word of God is sufficient to deal with any question you have. You do not need to go anywhere else to delve into any other self-help, psychiatry, anything else. If you have an issue, the Word of God will deal with it. It will deal with it internally with all of your stuff, and it will deal with it externally with how the world operates with us. You do not need to go anywhere else. The Word of God is sufficient. And when Jesus wants to tell those disciples who He is, He looks at him and says, You don't believe what the prophets say. Instead of telling them all of his teaching, do you not recognize me? Do you not remember who I am? Do you not remember me feeding you? Do you not remember me this? Do you not remember me that? Jesus says, you don't believe what the prophets say. Do not discount or discredit the Old Testament. It's two-thirds of your Bible for a reason. When Jesus wants to show this, this New Testament church, this getting ready to be New Testament church, he doesn't point just to his teaching. He points to the prophets. Why? Because that's where the foundation is laid. And I'm going to show it to you in just a minute. Verse 27. Beginning with Moses. Jesus doesn't point to his own teachings. He just confirms them. Jesus is going to take what their idea is and he's going to expand it to make it right. This is what Moses taught. This is how I fulfill it. He is not changing what the Old Testament says, he is confirming his message. Jesus doesn't point to his own authority. He shows that his story had already begun long ago. And so when they look into these passages, when he is preaching this sermon, sermons, they're going back and saying, just remember, like these people had books of the Bible memorized. There were some in the Jewish community that had the whole Old Testament memorized. A chapter or a book, right? They, they weren't really divided into chapters, but a book, a psalm, all of these things. They had them memorized. So as he's walking them through this and they're checking these boxes like, oh, that story, okay, yeah. 
Wow, okay, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, okay. And they're walking through this with him. But when he is teaching this sermon, when he is preaching this sermon to them, he doesn't point to his own authority. He points to his story. And he shows it to them long before he was ever born. Fascinating moment. Instead of pointing to a future hope, what does Jesus do? Jesus points to past promises that God checked off. Having a future hope is wonderful, but if it's not anchored to something sturdy and foundational, you and I are in trouble. We wake up every morning just guessing. Is it going to be good or is it not? Is stock market going to be up or is it going to be down? Am I going to have a good day or am I not? Listen, if it's not attached to promises that have been checked off repeatedly, you and I just kind of find it. What does Jesus do? Instead of pointing out his kingdom to come, instead of pointing out heaven to come, he points them backward and says, here's where God has made promises and here's where he has kept them. Now what does that do? That gives them hope for the next day. That gives them hope for the rest of God's promises. In order to really believe tomorrow is going to be good and blessed, I need to be anchored to something from yesterday. I need to be anchored in some promise that's why the nation of Israel was taught to teach their children the way God had blessed them. As they went, as they go, Deuteronomy is filled with these kind of things. You talk about God, and you tell them how He has loved our people, and how He has loved our family, and how He has blessed them, and how He has took care of them. Why? Because in order to have hope for tomorrow, I need to realize that my yesterday was anchored in, and my God was good. And His character is not going to change. So what do we see? We see Jesus in the Old Testament. We'll wrap up in five minutes. I'm going to go through this fast. You can explore these things if you want to later. Jesus in the Old Testament. In Genesis, who is He? He is the promised deliverer. Genesis chapter 3. He curses Satan. He curses the serpent. He says, you're going to bruise his heel and he's going to crush your head. The first prophecy of Jesus coming is not in a minor prophet. It's not in, it's not in Matthew chapter 1. It's not, it's not Mary finding out from Gabriel. It's not Joseph finding out from Gabriel. It's Satan finding out from God. You've done a horrible thing. Curse to your belly. You're going to lick the dust. The seed of woman is going to come. You're going to strike his heel and he's going to crush your head. It is the Proto-Evangelium, the very first gospel. Genesis chapter 2. Who else is he in Genesis? He is the son of promise and he is the miracle son. Ishmael and Isaac, there was a son of promise. Jesus fulfills that completely. He was also a miracle son. Abraham was a hundred. <laughs> she was ninety. And she got a baby. Listen, at forty having a newborn. Tell me right now, I'm glad. He was 100. She was 90. The Son of Promise was to come, just as God said it would come. Jesus was the Son of Promise. And who else is he in Genesis? I love this. He's Joseph at the end of the book. He's Joseph at the end of the book. He is the fulfillment of Joseph's life. He is humble. He is in exile. And he is a miracle from the dead. Remember Joseph's story? Right? His brother taken out. Hiding, selling Father thinks he's dead, and then by the end of the book, the Lord has made everything right. And not only that, he has protected the whole nation of Israel. And I love what Joseph says to his brother. It is one of the sweetest passages in all of Scripture. 
And he is able to look out and say what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I wonder if Jesus said that to that Roman soldier that pierced his side. And after Christ had died and the sky went dark, but he looked up and he said, surely this was the Son of God. I think you and I are going to meet that person in heaven one day. And I wonder if Jesus said the same thing to him when he entered his kingdom, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so when he pounded those spikes into his hand and into his feet, and when he ran that spear through his side, and he was doing all these things in the attention of evil, thinking that he was getting over a criminal and that this person deserved what they got, and then he walked into the gates of heaven, and Jesus looked at him and said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Is that fascinating to you? Man, I hope it works on your hearts. In Exodus, who is he? He is the real Moses. He is the deliverer. He is the Passover lamb. The blood that was shed, that, that is put over the doorposts to protect them from the death angel. Christ is that to us. He is the Passover lamb. The only one not to cover our sin, but to take it away. That is a huge difference. Instead of just covering our sin like the Old Testament does, it was lamb after lamb, day after day. Sound after sound, the constant bleeding, the constant dying, and it was just a picture of how ugly our sin was, and yet Jesus, one time for all, the spotless sin was Lamb of God. His blood is shed so that you and I don't have our sins covered, have our sins cleansed. We were as red as scarlet now. We are as white as snow. In Exodus, he is Moses and he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he is the ultimate fulfillment and the expression of the law and the love of God. I love this one. In Joshua, he's the one that knocks the walls of Jericho down. In Joshua chapter 5, he is the commander of the Lord's army. Don't you love that passage when Joshua goes nose to nose with this angel like, who are you? Are you on my side? Are you for me or are you against me? He says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. And he just kind of bows down and says, what do you need to tell me? <laughs> right? Like, challenge accepted. Challenge was wrong. In Judges, who is he? He is the one that breaks our evil cycle and delivers us once for all. The book of Judges is the cycle of humanity. We sin. We turn our backs on God. We sin. That sin leads to punishment. That punishment leads to crying and repentance. And then God sends a deliverer. And that cycle in the book of Judges happens seven or eight times. Jesus is the one that delivers us from that cycle for all of eternity. My sin has been forgiven. There has been a way made. The Lord has loved. In Ruth, He is the, he is the ultimate Boaz. He is the kinsman redeemer. He's willing to pay the price and accept responsibility for us. The kinsman redeemer, it cost Him something to redeem that loved one that was in trouble. Jesus is that for you and I. He is the kinsman redeemer. He paid the price that had to be paid to buy us out of slavery. In Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, who is he? He is the one true and perfect king. I love this one. In Nehemiah, he is both the builder and defender of our lives. He grieved our state and came to save us. That's Nehemiah's story. He could have forgotten the nation of Israel. He could have forgotten Jerusalem. He could have lived in the king's palace and eaten all the finest stuff and lived the greatest life ever. But what happens? God tells him bad news. And instead of just shrugging it off, he grieves. And he grieves so deeply that he walks into the king's presence and the king says, you've never looked like this before. What's wrong? And he says, Israel is broken. The walls are crumbled. The, 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 the doors, the 
They're gone. My people are in trouble. They're as good as dead. And the king sends them. So instead of being aloof, he is passionate and grieved. That is Christ to you and I. He is the builder of the walls. He is the defender of our lives. In Job, who is he? He is the mediator between God and man. In Job chapter 9, verse 33, when Job cries out, I don't have someone. God is not a man like me, and I am not a God like him. There's no one that can bridge this gap. Jesus is that bridge. He grabs a hold of my hand, and he grabs a hold of the hand of the Father. And he is our attorney. He is our advocate, our arbiter. He is good. I want to read something fascinating. Go through Psalm 22, 23, and 24 today. He is the forsaken of Psalm 22. What's it say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes through this whole brokenness. And then Psalm 23 is one of the sweetest in all Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He is the good shepherd. And in 24, he is the one that ascends the hill of heaven and the gates open up for him and you and I get to follow the king of kings. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is the picture of God's wisdom. He is the ultimate picture of the good life. In Song of Solomon, he is the great lover of your soul and your life. In Isaiah, he is the willing participant in it was the Father's good pleasure to crush him, the Lord beaten that has made us whole. How about Daniel? He's the fourth one in the furnace. He's the one that shuts the mouths of the lions. And he is also the son of man, high and lifted up. Worshipped for all of eternity. And then Micah, I've always loved Micah 6.8. He is God's command in action. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require but to live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He is the fulfillment of that beautiful picture. As they come this morning to play and we get ready to finish up, I leave you this morning with one proof and one principle. The prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Him cannot be discounted or discredited. To deny who He was in spite of all the proof is not an evidence problem, it's a heart problem. And Jesus walked them through this sermon to say he is not the Messiah or I had it right and Christ has it wrong. It's not the picture of an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. Isaiah 53, to read it and to see the life of Christ play out in that Old Testament passage written probably 600 years before he was born, to read that and say it doesn't point to Jesus is not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. The prophecies of the Old Testament are amazing because they point right to Jesus. Where he was born. How he was interacted with by others. Even how he would die. Psalm 22. Written some 950, 1,000 years before he was born. It's not an evidence thing we deal with. It's a heart thing. And finally, I'll tell you this. You will find Jesus in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. And therefore, he is the hope. He is the only hope of future blessing. And you'll find him in the Old Testament too. To know him is to know the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. As they sing this morning, if you need something, you come. Put your heart just to turn on the ideas you've gone through today. God has left us plenty of evidence. We do not have a blind faith. We have one that operates in evidence. The Lord has made it very, very clear who Jesus was. You and I need to bow to me now so we're not forced to bend. Thank you, Mr. Morgan.